following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I'm reading today from these glasses. Um, Matthew 9, 35, for quite a ways. So I will try to be animated. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Then Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere in among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. But also cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment. Give without payment. Take no gold, no silver, or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, nor a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever towns or villages you enter, find out who in it is worthy, and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, set and let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return back to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. So be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, 
but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone, you will not have gone enough through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes then. May God add his blessing and this his holy word. Thank you. Thank you, Meg. You handled that admirably. <laughs> um, all right. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to be able to preach this whole sermon. I'm going to have to figure out on the fly what parts of it to cut because we're starting a little later than I expected to. And it, it's actually slightly longer than most of my sermons. <laughs> and I want to respect your time. So just bear with me. If I'm going, just know it's in service of... Uh, <laughs> an appropriate edit on the fly. Okay, have you ever been excited about something and you can't wait to share it with somebody and they just don't care? Or maybe even respond with opposition? Like when I tell Tracy about a new guitar that I might buy? <laughs> or like when a college student tells their parents about the new political views they acquired this semester? <laughs> We're having a good time with this idea. I am anyway. But can you, can you put yourself in that moment and think about how it feels? To have something that you care a great deal about and you put it out into the world and the response is, eh, a pass. No thank you. Let's dive into scripture. I want to ask you a quick question. and I only have time for an answer or two. How have you heard this verse taught? The verse from, uh, one of our verses from the passage. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What is that verse about in the teaching of whatever church you might have been part of? Missions? Evangelism? Anything else? That's the extent of it, right? A community care. Wow. I want to hear that sermon. <laughs> I wonder um, how much variety, other than community care, that's really interesting. Now you've got me thinking, but I don't have time to think about it, Meg. I've got to move on. <laughs> Just a quick show of hands. If you have heard that passage taught or preached on about missions or evangelism, stick your hand in the air. Okay. it's a lot of hands. We bring a lot of assumptions to the Bible when we read it, and some of it is based on things that we've been taught so many times with such little variety that we can only come to a, a verse or an idea in one way. So I want to examine our assumptions about this um, concept and this passage, and I, I'm going to start by trying to put this in a little bit of context. I'm going to try to fly through this part, but if we were to look at chapter 9, leading up to where the lectionary passage started in verse 35, what we would see is Jesus healing a lot of people, 
Uh, you see Jesus starting to amass a following and starting to take some criticism for the types of people who are following him. When he calls Matthew, Matthew is a tax collector, which is problematic in that era because they were seen as traitors. They were seen as cogs in the wheel of oppression, in the machine of oppression of the Romans over the Jews. So if it's t- tax collectors were not good people to spend time with. And then there are, he also starts to get followed by uh, quote-unquote sinners, which is like this, this catch-all term for all of the undesirable people. Right? And what is about to happen uh, it, after this passage is Jesus is going to send out his... Uh, after he amasses this following and starts to get this criticism, he sends his disciples out, the 12 closest disciples, to quote, proclaim the good news. And this is where you get that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are the laborers are few idea, right? So, so far, have I said anything that would sort of contradict or go against the tr- traditional teaching about this passage about missions or evangelism? Probably haven't said much that would make you think about it in a different way just yet. But here is maybe one of the reasons why. I think a lot of the language in this passage is of a type that I like to call chameleon words. Chameleon words in the Bible are the words or phrases that can kind of take on whatever meaning a preacher or a teacher or a reader wants them to take on. Chameleon standing in front of a green plant looks green. Standing in front of a brown log looks brown. Some examples of chameleon words which can mean whatever the preacher or teacher or reader wants them to mean would include fornication or idolatry, or to take a phrase right from our passage today, good news. Okay? Uh, Good news is a phrase that's definitely in the Bible. It's in the passage we just read, although interestingly it appears twice in English and only once in Greek. But that's a phrase, good news, also gospel, same Greek word translated both, both ways into English, good news or gospel or message. It's a word that has layers and layers of meaning, doesn't it? Right? How many of you heard a sermon that says, that's like, this is the good news. Good news, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, we're, that laughter in the room is nervous laughter because we've all been in that room. And that doesn't sound to me like very good news at all. And yet, that's what it's called. It can mean that. How many of you heard a sermon that says, the good news is that Jesus came to establish a socialist utopia that we can all live in forever? I mean, maybe you haven't been in that church, but I have. And good news could be used and preached and taught or read on those two extremes and pretty much anywhere in between, right? Because we get to, with a phrase like good news, which is fairly ambiguous, we get to just sort of, we don't get to, but we do anyway, just say it means whatever we want it to mean. You see, the way we preach the gospel, what we call the good news of Jesus, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what Jesus actually sent his disciples out to preach. But because the phrase is so charged, so loaded, so heavy, because we have in some sectors of the church, attached it to eternal spiritual consequences, 
it's almost impossible to hear the phrase good news without hearing all of the baggage that comes along with it. And baggage I use, I try, it's not really a neutral term, but let's imagine it's neutral. Everything that you've heard about the good news is contained in the phrase every time you hear it. Does that make sense? All right. My goal in this sermon is not to give you a new definition of gospel or good news, although I do think the version that a lot of us were raised with is impoverished and needs a great deal of expansion. But I really, 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 as your pastor, as a person who is charged with your spiritual care, I need you to know this concept of the chameleon words. They are the source of all kinds of religious arguments. Because here's the thing. I recently read a research study about this, which is way too boring, except the concept is extremely interesting. A failure to agree on the definition of common words is the number one reason people fight about something. If you are both using the same word in a different way, you're going to be in an argument. I'm assuming there's two people. It's even worse when there's like a, a church or a denomination of people. And unfortunately, even worse than that, these chameleon words are often used as the leverage for all kinds of religious manipulation and even spiritual abuse. If a religious leader uses an ambiguous word or phrase to demand allegiance to a very specific doctrine or idea, consider that the starting pistol at a hundred yard dash out of that place. Right? If you ever catch me doing that, please, I mean, like, I'm, I, my, my problems are usually way in the other direction. I can't settle on one thing of anything. Um, I do love Jesus, though. Um, if a religious leader takes an ambiguous phrase and attaches it to a specific doctrine, and especially if it has any kind of whiff of social control connected to it, that's your cue to get out. Will you, will you promise me that you'll get out? Okay. All right, so if, if a new definition of the gospel isn't the point of my sermon, what is the point of my sermon? Well, it's changing as we go, but here's the thing. <laughs> I see, I think a lot about the weight that some of us carry when we try to convince people to see things our way, and it goes nowhere. I see so much pain that comes from this process whether it's from the way it feels when you are excited about an idea and someone else isn't, that hurts. It doesn't feel good. But maybe it doesn't harm you necessarily. But there are versions of this story that do. Because sometimes what's being shared is not just like, hey, isn't this new guitar really cool? Wouldn't it be awesome next to our couch? (laughs) But actually, I have just come to an understanding of who I am as a person and I want to share it with you, and then you're met with rejection, right? This is not something that I personally have experienced, and so I'm trying to be cautious and careful and not flippant at all about what that might be like for some of you. And yet, I'm going to gently push you uh, on, a, on this point a little bit. All of us, but that would include people who may have had a more personalized experience of what I'm describing than I have had, okay? So you have my permission to tell me That was a little over the line. You went a little too far. You pushed a little too hard. I would love to have that conversation with you.
but here's the thing. I, I really think that Jesus offers his followers a different option than what some of us engage in when we are met with resistance. It's not an easy option because it requires inner peace and a stable sense of security in yourself. Right? Which are the very things that are robbed, you know, that you're robbed of when your personhood is rejected. So I, I get that. But I want to take a, a brief but slightly closer look at what Jesus tells his disciples when he sends them out to proclaim what he calls the good news. Right? The passage starts in Matthew 9.35, and what it says is, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. First of all, we probably shouldn't disconnect the good news of the kingdom and cure of sickness, right? But that's not my point here. My point here is that he's teaching in the synagogues, right? It's very important to notice this fact. He's not in the streets. He's not in the pagan temples. He's not in the Roman Senate. He's in the synagogues. Now, please know this is not an anti-Jewish point. What I want you to see is that Jesus' teaching ministry begins inside the walls of the religious establishment of which he was a part. And what does Jesus find inside the synagogues? Well, the next verse says, he saw crowds and had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. What Jesus finds inside the walls of his own religion is crowds of people who are harassed and helpless. People who have been abandoned by the ones who are supposed to be caring for them and protecting them. And you know what question comes next. It's this. What would Jesus find inside the walls of our Christian communities now? Unfortunately, I think he would find people who are harassed and feeling helpless in part because they have been abandoned or wounded by the very people who are supposed to be caring for them. And so, when he sends out the twelve, this is what he says. Notice what he, what he says. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans. Now, the inside baseball here is that the Gentiles and the Samaritans are the people who are outside of, of Jesus' religious community and that of his disciples. Right? Don't go anywhere near them. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, don't get bogged down in the Jewishness here. What we, the last thing we want to do is read uh, the anti-Semitism that's baked into our culture today back into the words of the Jewish rabbi who we worship, right? But the point is that he deliberately, specifically tells them not to go preach to the nations, not to be proclaiming the gospel to anyone who's considered outside the walls of the well-established religious boundaries, all of that stuff comes later in the story. I'm not saying Jesus never tells his disciples to do that. I'm saying right here in this story, he specifically tells them, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And what if Jesus is calling you, calling me, calling us as a community to preach the good news not to non-Christians, but to Christians? <laughs> Could you imagine preaching the gospel to the church of Jesus? And some of you are going, yes, this is what I've been trying to do every day. Look at my Twitter timeline. Look at the, did you not see the reel I posted to my Instagram story? 
I mean, if we were Facebook friends, you would see the 17-comment-long argument I had with my Aunt Sharon about how her political views are distracting her from the real Jesus. <laughs> oh, looks like she just posted again. I better go back and respond. Well, let me just stop you right there. Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, to people in the Christian communities who are harassed and helpless and who have no one to care for them, not to the ones who are harassing them necessarily. Have I said anything yet that would contradict your common understanding uh, of the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few? Jesus warns them they're not going to have an easy time of it. He warns them in rather alarming language. You heard Meg say it. I'm not going to repeat all of it. Sheep in the midst of wolves, though, for example. He says you're going to meet with significant resistance because, you see, the part of the good news or gospel which is about how Jesus is seeking to bind up the brokenhearted who have been harmed and hurt and left for dead by their own spiritual communities, that gospel does not go over very well in said spiritual communities. And so now I come to the point of my sermon. Here's what Jesus says his disciples should do when they meet with resistance, proclaiming the good news to the lost sheep of Israel which we can take as sort of a metaphor or something we can extrapolate to our own day. This is what he says to them. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Can you picture that in your mind? Going to a house and putting out your peace, and when they go, no, no, thank you, not interested rather than getting hurt or wounded or angry, letting that peace return to you. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town, but be sure to put them on blast first and make sure that they know where you stand and make sure that you do it publicly so everybody else can see it. Before you shake the dust off your feet, make sure you get your words in. Some of that was not there. I added it for effect. When the message of peace is not returned to you, if you do not take a deep breath and accept it for what it is and allow the peace to return to you, you've put it out there and you've lost it. Not only has it not taken root in the hearts and minds of the people who you hoped it would, but you no longer have it for yourself. Don't stay in a town letting your feet get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and dirtier, hoping against hope that finally someone will come around to the thing that you now see as plain as day is the good news that Jesus has given to you. I know, I know you care about the people that you're talking to. I know that you think, because I do it all the time, that you are the one 
who just has to, who, who has the, the right turn of phrase that's going to convince someone who so far has not been convinced. You are not the one. I am, I am so sorry. I, I, I truly, sincerely wish that you were. Because I truly, sincerely wish that I was. But we're not. Aunt Sharon is too far down the QAnon rabbit hole. I'm sorry to put such a specific thing on it. It's heartbreaking. It is an evidence of your very good intentions and your lovely heart that you want to stick with it and try so hard. But it's ruining your life. What you should not do when your sermon's already too long is a five-minute ad lib. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you should. I honestly believe that these two ideas, these two little pictures that Jesus gives us are an enormous gift that he has offered to the church community, especially to those who are, are fighting to show people who you love how deep and wide and beautiful God's love is, actually, because they haven't seen it yet. But, but if you're finding you are no longer at peace because you're engaging too much, please see if you can stop for just a second and take a deep breath and allow your peace to return to you. Because Jesus gave it to you in the first place. And Jesus did tell you to go proclaim the good news. You've, you've done the thing. Oh, fellow box checkers, fellow list makers, you can say you did it. One in a hundred times it will take root. The other 99 times are some combination of rejection, ignorance, and whatever the modern-day equivalent of flogging in the synagogues is. I have this image. I love the story of the BFG by Roald Dahl. Do you know what I'm talking about, where he blows the dreams into the, into the bedrooms? I feel like we're sometimes blowing... If you don't know this image, I'm so sorry, because this is now less helpful, but we're just blowing this, this dream of peace, and it just doesn't take root. Don't let it go. Get it back for yourself. All right. I don't have to tell you that the harvest is plentiful. So many people are hurting. So many people have been wounded by their own spiritual communities. And it seems like there's so few people who've come through that healthy and ready to make a difference on behalf of God. The workers are few. We don't have the luxury of time to keep fighting and fighting against people who've told us they're not ready for the message that we're carrying. I believe that Jesus is giving us, maybe giving some of you, maybe even giving me permission to stop arguing, to let our peace return to us, And I'm so sorry, but I have to cement it into your minds to shake it off.
Shake it out. That's, that's two Taylor Swifts in a month for me. I shall not give you a third. Do not, do not sit around waiting. Oh, I don't know how good that sermon was before that, but I think I just ruined it. Whatever. <laughs> this is heavy on my heart. It really is. I'm trying to be, like, trying to be light and energized. It's heavy on my heart. When I say peace be with you, I mean it. Preach the good news. Fight the good fight. But do not surrender your peace. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.